Tonight's topic is a, a very serious and important one, a continuation of what we spoke about last week. Uh, and I want to kick it off with a little bit of a presentation. I don't usually, I don't usually do this, but uh, I thought this was really cool. So I typed over here a very important message. I don't know if you can see it. Can I want to read it? Okay, very important message. I'll put it here for the camera. Very, very important message. And for those listening online, I'm going to post it in the show notes. Uh, and this is, this is so important, but the problem is that it's written in Morse code. This is such valuable information. In fact, I'm going to read you the information. It's so valuable and so important and so critical. But when you look at it, it's inaccessible. If you wanted to read this and to understand the message, you'd have to get a Morse code book and then go, okay, with dash, dot, dash, dot, space, right? And it'll take you like maybe a few hours. Uh, but you need, to, you need to work really hard to understand it. When we talk about the oral Torah, written Torah, think of it as two documents or two, imagine it's two documents, right? I have on one end the written Torah. You want to read the written Torah and understand it? You're going to have to have the oral Torah. Yeah, it has everything there. If you if you if you can understand the written Torah, you are way ahead of the game. You, you, if you actually understand the written Torah, you get it all. However, the problem is that it's written in Morse code. To understand Morse code, you have to have the decryptor key. You have to decode it. It's encrypted, and you have to try to understand it. When we look at the written Torah, written Torah enables us to understand the enigma that is the written Torah. You read the written Torah, you, you have no idea what you're, what you're doing. You get the general ideas, you get the meanings behind some mitzvahs, you get the flavor, you get the structure, you know that on circus you have to sit in something for seven days, what that thing is, what are the rules, are. you have no idea. It's all hidden. It's all encoded. When we have the oral Torah, the oral Torah opens it up. It's the decryption code. It makes it understandable and usable and applicable uh, to each and every one of us. Tonight's topic is going to be centered around this relationship, this coexistence, and interdependency of these two bodies of work. We have the written Torah. It's got 5,845 sentences. doesn't sound like a lot, but that's what it is. 5,845 verses. It's got, I think, 304,805 letters. Depends how you count. It could be even a lot more. It's a very kind of, it's a, it's confined. It's 54 sections, partios. It's five different books. Uh, you know, but it's, 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 it's very defined. It's very limited, so to speak. And then when we talk about oral Torah, we're talking about an infinite amount of explanation and of understanding and of guidelines and of limitations and of source material and other scenarios. It just, it's an infinitesimally larger uh, amount of information. And the question that I want to try to understand tonight is, why do we have this coexistence, this dual methods of instruction? So on one hand, we have the written Torah, uh, but we have the oral Torah companion to that as well. Uh, and the, the critical question I want to ask, which is a question that people ask a lot, uh, especially people that are not so keen on the details of the oral Torah, is why was the oral Torah just not written down? Just, just write it all. Just simplify it for us. Why do you have to have for 1,500 years since Moses teaches us the oral Torah, you have it being transmitted orally. Why, why, why not just write it all down? You write it down, and that's much easier to convey to the next generation. If I wanted to give you a copy of Moby Dick, right? I could just give you a copy, and you could copy it or to take pictures of it and give it to the next person. It's very simple to transmit. Uh, oral Torah, if it's being transmitted orally, it's a lot of details, a lot of information. It's a tremendous amount of information. Write it down. Simplify it for everyone. Why was it oral Torah not written down? Okay, so that, that's an important question. What, tonight we're going to go through uh, what I, I've collected nine different answers to that question. Nine different answers as to why the oral Torah was oral. And then next week we'll talk about, okay, why was it eventually written? What that process was about. Uh, so actually, to be clear, just for the sake of, uh, of, of clarity, I want to point out that the oral Torah indeed was written. And in fact, this, what I started off to talk with, is actually the Morse code that corresponds to the Rambam, Maimonides, when he writes about the oral Torah being written out incrementally. He says as follows. Rabbi Judah the Prince, famous leader of the Jewish people at the end of the second century, uh, he's known as our holy teacher, he wrote the Mishnah. From the time of Moshe until Rabbi Judah the Prince, no one had written a work from which the oral Torah was publicly taught. Rather, in each generation, the head of the court or the prophet of the time wrote down for his private use 
notes on the tradition he heard from his teachers, but he taught in public from memory. So this is a very important point. To say that the Oral Torah was not written for 1,500 years is a little bit of a mistake. It was not canonized. It was not codified. It wasn't finalized in a final canon that's immutable text that this is the authoritative Mishnah or this is the authoritative Talmud. That only happened 1,500 years after Moses. However, from the time of Moses all the way the successive 15 centuries until it was finally written, it was being written in each generation, written and refined and the notes were passed on internally. The only difference was is that there was no public work, written work, that was available for everyone and that was the authoritative work that was not to be amended. Continues the Rambam. So to each individual, wrote down, according to his ability, parts of the explanation of the Torah and its laws that he had heard, as, as well as the new matters that developed in each generation, which had not been received by tradition, but had been deduced by applying the 13 principles for interpreting the Torah and had been agreed upon by the great rabbinical court. Such has always been done until the times of Rabbi Judah the Prince. So ironically, the claim that the first time the Oral Torah was written was the time of Rabbi Judah the Prince, when the Mishnah was formalized about the year 200 of the Common Era, is doubly wrong. Not only was it not the first time, but indeed there were so many renditions, written renditions of the Oral Torah, that what he did was not write a new one, but rather condense or, so to speak, uh, uh, codify the existing body of Oral Torah in a finalized text. So it's almost as if, before Rabbi Judah the Prince, we have many, many, many individuals and leaders writing down the Oral Torah. And Rabbi Judah, from the time of Rabbi Judah the Prince, henceforth, or thenceforth, we have a single solitary rendition of the bishop. Uh, so that's that, that, that that's that's uh, just for clarity's sake. The oral Torah was written; it just wasn't finalized, canonized in an authoritative uh, version. The real question we have to ask. By the way, what I just read from the Rambam, this is this is it in Morse code. Lots of dashes, but uh, if you wanted to get the wisdom, this probably wouldn't be the best way to get it. If you want to get the wisdom of the Torah, the best way to get it is via the oral Torah. Uh, but the big question is like this: Why did Moshe? Originally, Moshe gave us an authoritative written Torah. Why would he not give us as well an authoritative oral Torah as well in a written format? Now, not only did we not have it, in fact, there is a prohibition against writing down the oral Torah. The reason why everyone up to the time of Rabbi Judah the Prince taught publicly from memory is because the Torah mandates that the, that the oral Torah cannot be written down. There's a prohibition against writing down the oral Torah. So the question is, you know, perplexing. Why is it so much better to have the oral Torah in the oral format not written down that the Torah wanted to enforce it by saying it's prohibited to write it down? In fact, you read what the Talmud says, this is from the Talmud, that if someone writes down, Rabbi Yochanan says, if someone writes down the oral Torah, it's as if he is burning the Torah, which is very harsh words. And, and, and it's essentially saying that the only way the Torah can continue and flourish, the only way for us to not have disruption in Torah transmission, is if the oral Torah remains oral. So, just this, this kind of amplifies our problem. It's not only that it wasn't written down because no one ever had the time to write it down in an authoritative way. Remember, Moshe was the most talented rabbi we've ever had. You know, if Rabbi Judah the Prince could have done it, certainly Moses could have done it, right? But Moses doesn't need to start from anyway, he started straight from God. So Moses could have written it down. So, but there was a conscious decision not to write it down, and in fact, to prohibit its final writing down. The question is why? Why is it so much better to have the oral Torah in oral format and not written down? Uh, that's our question of the evening. And behold, let's uh, try to examine some of the ideas here. Okay, so I want to start with the first reason. And this is kind of, it's going to illustrate why the Torah is such a dramatically different uh, corpus of, of knowledge. Uh, remember, we claim that the Torah comes from God. It's the written Torah is authored by God. The oral Torah is de delivered to us by God via Moshe. Like, this is all from God. Uh, but who are the stewards of Torah? Who's in charge of maintaining the Torah? 
Who's in, start, in charge of teaching the Torah to the next generation? Who's in charge of perpetuating Torah? Well, that's, that's not God's responsibility. That's our responsibility. And the Almighty wants to, wanted, obviously, to enable us, to give us the tool, to give us the capacity to take the Torah that we got from Him, unadulterated Torah, written Torah, all Torah, together, and teach it to successive generations until this very day. In 2016, right, we're talking about uh, uh, 3,327, 28 years after Mount Sinai, we could still claim that the Torah that we have today is the same Torah that the Almighty of Moses at Mount Sinai, and it hasn't been corrupted till now. That, that, that's an audacious claim, right? 3,300 some odd years of different societies and civilizations, turmoil, upheaval, dispersal, right? So many things have happened to our nation. Right? And yet, the, the claim is there, and it's, it's just a bold claim. But that obviously was the intention of the, give, of the giver of the Torah, i.e. the Almighty. So the Almighty is going to select a method of giving the Torah that is the best method to ensure that it won't be forgotten. Remember, our society, right, we think we're so clever, but I will prove to you that we are so terrible at this, and humans are so terrible at this. We think, oh, I'll, I'll just say what I want, I'll even write it down, I'll simplify it, and I'll give that document over to someone else, and they'll never have any misunderstandings. And the reason why it sounds so simple, but we have a great example, the best example, the Constitution, right? The United States Constitution. It was written by very intelligent people, clearly with the intention of it being understood by future generations. It's only a couple hundred years ago. It's really not so long ago. Uh, yet there's tremendous debates. This is not written in a foreign language. It's not like we have to translate from Latin. Right? This, this is English, written by very intelligent, intelligent people. It's not so much information, right? Ted Cruz, our senator, he memorized the Constitution when he was like in high school. It's not so much information. It's vastly more simple and less information than the Torah. Yet, our society today grapples with the very basic, fundamental, simple principles of the, of, of the Constitution. Just the basics. Just what are the words even mean? And it's incredible. Like, it, like it's not like, you know, there's things that were left unsaid. The Constitution wrote everything that the, the architects of the Constitution wanted to say. Because they assumed it would be understood forever. Boy, were they wrong. You know, it's, it's incredible. Like, our society, just this, this debate today, everywhere you go, there's debate. Well, second, First Amendment, Second Amendment. The, you know, those, those are unanswered questions. And the question is why. So clearly we see that maybe we're not so good at transmitting information in a method, right, via writing it down, to ensure that it will be understood by future generations. Now, the most talented entity in the world at transmitting information is God. Is it so out of the question to assume that God would use a different formula than us silly humans do to try to perpetuate information? That's not such a big leap to climb over. That's a big, right? Of course, that makes sense. So we look at the oral Torah and written Torah, that coexistence, that, 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 that dual instruction format as being God's way of writing and of teaching orally the Torah to ensure it won't uh, be uh, forgotten. So I think that's, that, that, that's, that's the initial idea. The initial idea is that the oral Torah and written Torah are each going to work with each other to ensure uh, fidelity to truth. For example, we spoke about this a little bit in previous weeks. You have written Torah. What, what does it mean? Go to the oral Torah. You have oral Torah. Well, what does that mean? Go to written Torah. It's almost like a checks and balanced system wherein there has to be perfect uniformity between written Torah and oral Torah. Remember, the humanity of it us perfectly. If it's messed up, we made a mistake along the way. You look at the Talmud. The Talmud is constantly working between trying to make sure that there's perfect uniformity and compatibility between both vastly different ways of being given over the same information. If we have this Morse code and we have the accompanying document and they're not perfectly aligned, well, we made a mistake in the transmission, so to speak. So if 
the Almighty is going to employ this very, just tremendous, tremendously innovative method, right? I'll give the same information in radically different ways. And both will have to be perpetuated independent of each other. Because you have to have a written document. You write a Torah scroll. You copy from an existing Torah scroll. You copy from another existing Torah scroll. That is the same. We have the same Torah. Like we know. We found Torah scrolls that are 23, 2400 years old. Same Torah scrolls that we have today. That's perpetuated. Uh, how the Torah scroll is perpetuated. You copy it from an existing Torah scroll. You mouth out the words. Uh, but oral Torah is not done in solitude in your basement copying from a Torah scroll. It's done in a class setting, in, in, you know, in a yeshiva setting, in a masifta setting. Parents to children, teachers to students, leaders of the generation to their constituents, one generation to another generation. And at any point in time, if we find a discrepancy between these vastly different methods of, trans, of, of the transmission, we know we have a problem. Thus, each one of them ensures that the other one maintains its accuracy throughout the, throughout the ages. Every time the Talmud, every single page of the Talmud, and we have Gary here to attest that that's true, every single page of the Talmud, it quotes a halacha, a law, an oral Torah law, and it says, where is this source? Where do these words come from? The oral Torah cannot extend beyond the boundaries that the written Torah formulates for it. So if you have an oral Torah law that cannot be traced back to the written Torah, or within the, within the, 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 the format, the infrastructure that the, that, you know, that the written Torah provides, so if it's not, let's say, a rabbinic law, etc., then we know there's something wrong with your idea. And many, many times in the Talmud, there's a rabbi who proposes an idea and they say, wait a minute, where's its source? And it goes through all the sources and ultimately it says, Tiyufta. It's a question. We have to discard that. Because the written Torah is there to ensure that the old Torah doesn't get corrupted. You know, humans are fallible. You know, the scholars, they try very hard to ensure that they don't make mistakes, but mistakes can happen. But we can easily fix mistakes or teachings that go awry with this dualistic method of, of transmitting the same information. So that's number one. But number two, this is also maybe a little counterintuitive. You know, a lot of people in the room here, and I'm sure watching a lot listening and listening, uh, they went to university. And certainly they didn't go to university. They went to schooling of some sort, uh, traditional schooling. Some people go to homeschooling, so maybe that's not so relevant. But, you know, I have students. You know, they're in med school for 10 years. Get the book. Memorize the book. Spend all that money. You go to law school. Why don't you go to law school? Read the book of laws. You know it. Intuitively, we realize that if you really want to study a subject, the learning from a teacher, right, it actually works a lot better. You can use examples. You clarify things you don't understand. You know, tonal inflections really matter a lot. You know, we, we, it's simple to us that if you want to understand how to be a physician, how to be a lawyer, how to be an accountant, how to be a geologist, how to be anything. Right? You have to go to someone who's going to teach you. And you have to listen to lectures. And you have to have a relationship with a mentor you know, who's going to guide you if you want to do advanced scholarship. You'll have someone who's helping you with your thesis or with your doctoral thesis or your graduate uh, work. We, we understand that. But Torah is much more complex than anything we could study uh, in any of the sciences, any of the mathematics, any of the law. It's more, it's more difficult. It's very difficult. And you expect us to just read it out of a book? So clearly, I think this is just as a, as a beginning. Yes, we find a just uh, remarkable playing off each other with the written Torah, all Torah, number one. Number two, just, it's just a better way of learning. And like we said, you know, to, to assume that you write things down, they'll be understood later is a gross uh, mis- you know, misrepresentation of human capacity to do that. Um, words just don't pop out of the page like they do when it's taught in the oral format. Uh, but there's more. When you write something down, like we mentioned, you become limited to what, you know, to, to the words that are on the paper. You're teaching something. You you. The way a, 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 a competent teacher does it, they present ideas. And the ideas uh, are malleable. 
you know, and be transported to different applications. So, you know, you, t- you take an idea and you say, okay, there's four or five examples of that idea. Uh, but you're, you're, you're giving over more than a specific idea. You're taking a principle that can be applied to other ideas. And this is very critical, for example, in Torah study. Because remember, Torah, if it's from God, like we say it is and we've proven that it is, therefore it has to be capable of withstanding the evolvement of technology, for example. So you want to you know how to observe Shabbos. Suddenly there's a refrigerator in your house. What do you do now? So if you had the final book of oral Torah, you would say, okay, I'm going to go under, under R, under refrigerator, and see what they say. Problem is, it was written 2,000 years ago before refrigerators were invented. Or cars, right? or cell phones, or uh, motion-detecting lights that pop up by your neighbor's house when you walk by it. Right? Or a lot of things. Now for us, because we have the oral Torah in the method that it was, it was, it was given, Right? We are able to take the principles and apply the principles to changing situations and scenarios. But if the Torah was written, but it becomes much harder, by the way, because since the oral Torah was written, we have a lot of fixed examples. And then when you take an example, you have to extrapolate the principle out of the example and then apply the principle forward. So I'll give you an example, very, very modern, very, very, not very ancient example. There's a whole book in the uh, in the Talmud called Baba Kama, that the first, uh, I believe, six chapters deal with the laws of damage of my property damaging your property. So, my ox gores your ox. I don't know many people that have oxen, uh, and this is not such a common situation in, in modern day, you know, uh, civilized, not civilized, but uh, just uh, industrialized world. So if I want to know the laws of my property damaging your property in modern times, I have to study the examples of yesteryear. I have to extrapolate the principles out of it and then apply the principles to modern situations. So that makes it much harder. However, if the oral Torah was still active today, if it was still entirely oral, I wouldn't be studying about cows and oxen and all those things. My animal eats your stuff, your produce and your field. I don't have a field, I don't have an animal. What I, would, I would learn the principle and that principle would be much easier adapted to modern situations. Now, studying, we have the laws of blessings, right? You learn the laws of blessings. So you read the book of Brachos and it talks about all these ancient foods that you've never heard her before. And it uses the, the names, the Aramaic names of dishes that people stopped cooking 2,000 years ago. That's what you have to work with. Because when they wrote it down, they wrote it down in, in the language that they're used to. But remember, that becomes fixed. This is a finalized text of the Old Torah. The Mishnah is finalized. The Talmud is finalized. We can't adapt it. Well, well, what do we do? What is this obscure kind of, uh, you know, crepe? How thick was it? Was it made of? You know, like, we don't know. Because it was a common food. If I said pizza, well, you know what pizza is? In 2,000 years, maybe they won't be eating pizza. I assume they will. Pizza is pretty good. But, but, if I wrote today, like uh, the, the blessing on pizza is X, Y, or Z, people stopped eating pizza a thousand, a thousand years from now. Two thousand years from now, they're like, well, what does that mean? Well, pizza. You got pictures of what a pizza looked like. They try to understand, well, why would people eat it? That's what we're doing, basically. We're learning lots of blessings. All these uh, obscure, you know, ancient, uh, archaic food types. We have to understand, like, what is this made of? How is it made? And working backwards to extrapolate the core principle from that, and then we use that to apply to donuts. And modern foods like that. Um, so it becomes, it becomes much harder to write it down. Uh, that's the tremendous drawback of writing down oral Torah. However, uh, you know, oral Torah in its pristine format, when it's being transmitted orally, it becomes much easier to uh, adapt principles to new situations. That's another reason why the oral Torah was initially maintained in its oral format. Another reason, to keep it out of the hands of Gentiles. So, this you know, may sound strange, uh, but in our history, we've had almost nothing but grief uh, from the Torah being in the hands of non-Jews. Um, for example, the day that the Septuagint was commissioned. Septuagint is the first translation of the Torah to a foreign language. That language was Greek. Uh, King Ptolemy II or third, doesn't even matter, 
Uh, he commissioned 70 rabbis to translate the Torah, this document that the Jews are obsessed over, translate it into Greek. And he took these 70 rabbis and he isolated them into different rooms, 70 different cubicles. They can't talk to each other, they can't collaborate. And they had to write this, what's called today, the Septuagint, uh, Septus from seven, 70, the translation of the 70. That day in Jewish history is marked by a fast day, the day of mourning. Ever since the, the, the Torah has been handed on Jews, they've used it against us. They've misinterpreted it. They've perverted it. They've mistranslated it. It has been nothing but grief for us. Um, but we had to have a written Torah. And, but that's the danger. You have a written Torah, and uh, it's, a, it's a physical document available uh, as opposed to the oral Torah. It's in your heart. You know, it's, it's, it's not access, as easily accessible. Uh, and that's another reason why the old Torah was maintained oral. But I think there's a little bit of a deeper insight. It's not just that we want it to be in the, in the hand, not in the hands of Gentiles. But the idea of Torah being more than just a body of knowledge. It's not just information that we're trying to acquire and impart on our children. It's a way we relate to God. Right? This is how we relate to God. It's God's Torah. We cleave to Torah. And by virtue of that, we have a deeper understanding of God. In fact, one of the ways the Torah is described is that it's our betrothed. It's almost as if we're married to Torah. We're connected to Torah on such an intimate level. Uh, therefore, like what really binds us with Torah? What, what creates this special relationship where it's us and the Torah or the Torah and us? That's all Torah. Written Torah, it's, it's like we connect to it kind of, you know, we have like a 18 inches between us and, the, and, and written Torah. Right? We, we, we read it, we study it, but it's still without us. Oral Torah, like it's, it's something that's in our hearts, so to speak. It's, 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 we have to memorize it. It's, it's within us. And that deep relationship with Torah, that's for the Jewish people. The Jewish people stood outside and we accepted the responsibilities, uh, but also the privileges of Torah. Right? Oral Torah being in the hands of non-Jews, it's inappropriate. Uh, and by having the oral Torah um, in its oral format, that ensured that the Torah would be ours, or at least per- certain parts of the Torah would not ever get in the hands of, of non-Jews. Uh, that would be indeed a fourth benefit of having the oral Torah oral and not written. Now, uh, next week we're going to talk about, okay, well, what happened? Why was it written? Uh, but we'll probably talk first about, well, how was it maintained in its oral format, and then why was it ultimately written? Because... Now, most of the oral Torah is indeed available in written form. Like I said, Rabbi Judah the Prince wrote down the Mishnah, which was part of the oral Torah. Later, when the Talmud was written, even later, Halacha, or most of Halacha, or a lot of Halacha was written down, was formalized. Uh, so there are still vestiges of oral Torah that are purely oral today, but the vast majority of the oral Torah was indeed written down, which is a question. If there's so many benefits of keeping the oral Torah oral, and indeed it's prohibited by Torah law to write down the oral Torah, why was it ultimately written down? Which is a critical question we'll get to next time. Okay, a fifth reason why oral Torah is oral and not written down. We we study Torah. And in some places we study Torah, we study mathematics, we study physics, we study English history, the sciences. We realize the Torah is different. The Torah is from God. It's godly wisdom. But to actually study it, well, what, what do you have to do to study oral Torah? You have to dedicate yourself to it. You have to open up your mind and your hearts. You have to challenge yourself. It's, it's a lot of information. Typically, people, young, young pupils, when the oral Torah was oral exclusively, young pupils would go and study oral Torah for 14 years as, at a minimum. That was basics, 14 years of study, intense study, 18 hours a day maybe, up to 18 hours a day. That's dedication. Right? The relationship that we have with Torah is when we realize this is from God. And it's tremendously transformative wisdom. It connects us to God, it connects us to ourselves. And when it's oral, it becomes a little bit more exclusive, a little bit more harder to obtain. And therefore, to achieve it, to, to study it, we have to work even harder. We have to really have dedication. And it's important for us. It's important that the oral Torah, that the, that the Torah is not just, the wisdom of the Torah is not just given out, like, oh, you know, just given out, on, you know, on the corner, uh, every corner there's a, a little ice cream 
van that gives out Torah. No, it's important for us to realize that the Torah, the wisdom of Torah, is not dispensed like gumballs. We have to dedicate ourselves to understanding it. And by the way, even when the oral Torah was written down, the tremendous visionaries that wrote it down, they worked very hard to still maintain an oral Torah flavor to it. They still maintained, they still wrote it over in a way that it's not entirely user-friendly, which is remarkable because they, these are men of uncomparable genius. And yet they deliberately wrote the oral Torah in a way that it's still you have to work hard to understand it. You still have to dedicate yourself in time, tremendous amount of time. They didn't use indexes. They didn't start logically necessarily. I'll give you an example. The, uh, the tractate Shabbos, which deals with Shabbos. Right? So there's a Mishnah, I believe on page 74, that says there's 39 categories of work, and it goes to the one after another, right? It says there's plowing and planting and harvest. Right? It goes one after another. Very large. That, that should be the place where it should start. A lot of people, when they learn, learn the laws of Shabbos, they go to page 74 and start from there. Right? And if you think about it, like the editors, these are brilliant people. Like they should have started maybe Mishnah 1, chapter 1, with this is what Shabbos is about. There's 39 categories and then break it down from there. And they start with the laws of, 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 of carrying, of taking from one domain to another domain. Seems bizarre, right? But that the intention was to give over oral Torah with as much of the genuine oral Torah flavor that demanded that we work hard to understand it intact. Give me another example. Agadita. That's a word that if you know what I'm talking about, your eyes will light up. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you're like, wow, what did he say? Agadita or agad, agad, like hagada. It's a very similar word. There are sections of Talmud called Agarita, loosely translated as homiletic or ethical or philosophical parts of, of, of Talmud. But basically anything that's not pure law, that's not halacha, like what to do as a Jew, it's more like what to think as a Jew, what to understand as a Jew, how to behave as a Jew. Kind of the fuzzier parts, it's called Agarita. Now, you read one page of Talmud, half halacha and half Agarita, like half standard Talmud, and half you're like, this was written by two different people. It's almost like we can have Bible criticism for, for Talmud. It, you cannot imagine that the same architects authored these vastly different methods of instruction. You'll believe it. Why? Because when it talks about the laws of Shabbos and the laws of circumcision, and the laws of every, all the laws, it tries as hard as to make it to make to, to get to the bottom of, of, of the issues, to understand the principles, to understand the applications of it. When it talks about agarita, the philosophical, the ethical, the inspirational, the behavioral, you know, the, you know, the, the philosophical, the theological parts of Torah, it talks in metaphors, it gives stories, it gives examples that are outrageous, it says bizarre ideas. And you read it like, why? What? What did it teach me here? Example: I gave a lecture on this once. The Talmud says there are three things that are a measure of the world to, that are a measure of the world to come. Three things in this world that are like the world to come: Shabbos, the sun, going to the bathroom. That's it. That's all you have. These are the same authors that tried to give us clarity in every law, organizing it and codifying it and distilling it. That's it. That's all we have. There's no explanation. And the idea is, is that when they wanted to convey the deepest, most profound, most esoteric, most special ideas of Torah, they wanted to ensure that the only way you'll understand it is A, if you're dedicating yourself to it, if you spend six months trying to understand it, and B, if you have a very broad base of knowledge from the rest of Talmud. What they would do is, they would take an idea, break it up into five or six different pieces, and scatter those pieces throughout the Talmud. So you have one sliver of it, three points, what? You, you have no idea where to start, right? And it's, it's hidden in plain sight. It's all there. All you gotta do is spend 20 years studying Talmud intensively, and you'll know it. So it's almost as if they took, like, the, you know, the same, Difficulty of trying to understand uh, the enigmatic 
Torah and working and dedicating and toiling and strenuous, um, continuous study over a long time, the same flavor that the oral Torah was transmitted, and they just wrote it down. But you, the work is the same almost. And by the way, that does not apply only to uh, the Agarita. Agarita is where it's more pronounced. But even the Halacha, you want to know the Halachas of something, you have to know every place in the Talmud that it discusses it. And that's why extracting halacha out of Talmud is so difficult. It's all there, but it's not organized in a clear fashion. And some parts, some huge sections of, of Talmud, a lot of them, are cut up into four or five pieces. Say out the Talmud, go find it. So it's almost as if the altar had to be written down. We'll get to why next week. It had to be written down. But even when it was written down, they maintained the same reasons why it was initially oral. They tried to perpetuate that in the finalized, codified version of that. You know, I always say that, imagine you have an encyclopedia. Encyclopedia Britannica, I think it's 38 volumes. Tiny letters, 10 pages. It's an enormous amount of information. But it's not alphabetized. And every entry is cut up into four and scattered throughout. Imagine you had that. You have all the world's information at your fingertips, but you don't even know where to look for it. You gotta find the needle in the haystack. You find one needle, now you have to find the other three needles. That's what the Talmud is. It has everything there, but some things are hidden, and some things are scattered, and some things are cut up into four pieces, and the, 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 the job that we have to have to study and to understand it is almost the same as it was prior. Still have to work hard. So they managed to accomplish almost everything that they wanted to do and yet avoid losing the special benefit of keeping the oral Torah oral. Just incredible. If you think about the genius of the people that wrote down these books, it's unbelievable what they managed to do here. Take all the oral Torah, organize it, and then disorganize it. But disorganize it in an organized fashion. And then take all the parts and cut them up a few pieces, throw them at the Talmud and 63 books. Go ahead, right? It's accessible, yes, but you still have to work really hard. And by the way, uh, we talked, we'll talk more about it, but the Shulchan Aruch, Book of Code of Jewish Law. One of the books that is on the Mount Rushmore of Jewish books. All of Jewish law. What he did is he dealt with the Talmud and it's like, wait a minute, what's halacha? Well, how, how do we behave as Jews, right? You want to, it's all in the Talmud, go find it, right? So he basically unscrambled the Talmud and unscrambled the Rambam, unscrambled everything and organized it, you know, by ideas. You know, all the laws of, of mezuzah, for example, all in one place and all the final conclusions. And that was a little bit controversial in his time. Some of the great rabbis of all of Jewish history were a little bit disappointed. Suddenly, you don't have the word to study. It's everything, everything's there. Everything, the word Shulchan Aruch, what does it mean? Shulchan Aruch means a set table. You don't have to work at all. It's all set. You can go to the restaurant, right? You don't have to set the table. Why not? In your house, you have to. Well, they take the work out for you to charge you a premium, right? That's what he said. Uh, my book is the set table. Anything you want, you just come and eat it. You want to know the laws of sukkah? Just open up the book. It's, there's indexes. Go there. It's all organized. You don't have to worry about it anywhere else in the Talmud, right? He unscrambled it. And some people were a little bit disappointed. Wait a minute. What happened to toil of stu- Torah study? You know, because the Talmud, when it was written down, it was maintained in the oral format. You have to work hard. You, you, if, and initially it was kept oral because there's no other way to study oral Torah in its true oral fashion without working. And even when they wrote it down, they ensured that the work will have to continue on. That's the fifth reason why oral Torah is oral. Let's go on to number six. To enable incremental learning. Let's assume, let's assume that the oral Torah was written by Moshe. He wrote an oral Torah written Torah. Every kid, when they go to school, every first grader in school, they have what's called a chumash party. They get a chumash, it's a party, right? What they, what, what, what they would have otherwise, if everything was written down, they'd have a chumash party, but it would be an entire bookshelf of books. And every little kid would say, well, this is Torah, right? Every kid would have to start studying with everything, because it's all the same, right? It's all the same, it's all, there's no way to scale up to it, right? 
Because it's, it, it's assuming had Moshe given us everything written to our altar, all in finalized books, well, then that would kind of all have the same status. We have to start with everything. Can you imagine how overwhelming that would be? Could you imagine, you know, younger students or weaker students or less experienced students, just this barrage. Just imagine how difficult it is. You know, we're adults in this room. You know, if I took uh, all of Talmud and threw it at you, threw it at me, threw it at anyone. It's difficult. It's 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 a process. Oral Torah, what happens? You go to you go to you go to your classroom, first day of oral Torah study, teaches you one thing, or another thing, another thing, another thing. In progressively over 14 years at a minimum, you get the capacity to kind of expand and expand and expand and to get there where you know all of Torah. If you just had a book, you'll be like, where do I start? This is not for, this is too much. And today, people look at the Talmud, all of Talmud. You start one end of the shelf, and you start moving your eyes to the other end. And that's just Talmud. And then you have the tour. Oh my gosh, 22 volumes, tiny letters, thin pages. And Shulchan Aruch. Like it's, it becomes overwhelming. You walk into any Jewish, any basic Jewish library, and you're like, this is not even all of oral Torah. And it's, this, this is so overwhelming. You have oral Torah in the ancient days. You come. You, you, maybe you memorized Chumash. You memorized all 5,845 verses. You have a baseline, a little bit of a framework. Well, let's start learning the laws of Sukkah. What's a Sukkah? What does it look like? Think of that side, right? And you could kind of move from there. Additionally, this is a little bit of an extension of the same idea. What would happen if the oral Torah was always written? Every guy would assume that they're experts. I've written Torah. You've written Torah. We, kind of, we both bought it in the same store. Right? I have an oral Torah. You have an oral Torah. We both bought the same finalized work. And suddenly, we kind of have this equal footing where every fool and every charlatan, they assume that they're the greatest scholar that ever existed. That's what they assume. Because what do you mean? I have the books, you have the books. I can look it up, you can look it up. What's the difference? The Almighty wanted us to... It's not just about information. The Almighty could have pre-planted us with all of Torah. We could have had like the Matrix, right? You just have all the information buzzed into your brain, right? The Almighty wants us to grow and to change. And therefore, there are people that are great Torah scholars and people that are not such great Torah scholars. Right? It depends on how much they work. If you have an organized oral Torah, everything's there, everything's organized, everything's good, right? Today, right, if there's a greatest rabbi and then there's someone like me, we want to know the halacha, right? So he maybe knows it by heart. But now I go to the Mishabru and I find the same halacha that he does. It's a little bit of a problem. Almost anyone, anyone can play a rabbi, right? Now they have online. You can Google your question. If you do Google, you can know all the answers. Is that what we want? What happens then? Everyone assumes that I know all the answers. I don't need the rabbi. When I know nothing about Torah, I don't understand the sensitivities of every delicate issue. I don't understand how to approach the subject. What happens then? Everyone says, no, no, I disagree, because I think I'm, I'm, I'm on par with all the great Torah scholars. You have divisiveness. Everyone says, oh, I, I think I'm going to interpret that way. I think, I, oh, I have my own way of interpreting. You guys suddenly have a divided nation. So ironically, by making the oral Torah more difficult to understand by not being written down, you could kind of figure out who are the scholars and who are not so much the scholars. And that way we know who are the leaders of the people. We know who are the authorities on whatever matters that are uh, important. In, in Jewish life, in Jewish, in Jewish communities. Like we said, even when the oral Torah was written, it was written in a way, it kind of mirrors the process of oral Torah in its oral format. When it was written down, we have written oral Torah. It's a little bit confusing, I know. We have oral Torah when it's just oral, and then it was written down. But even when it was, was written down, it was still written down in a way that's still kind of hard to separate. It's kind of easy to separate the people who really know things from the people that are pretenders. You know what? Because it's still kind of hard. You say, oh, you think you know it? Okay, well, what does the Talmud say here? What does the Talmud say there? Well, how are you going to send it? Uh, you know, just compare and contrast. And all the, you know, the, it, there's still room for us to kind of understand who are going to be the leaders of the community, who are going to be the experts of Torah, and, 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 uh, and who's not. Maybe that's one of the problems with, that uh, the commentators had with, with Rabbi Joseph Kaira. You know, all of Halakha is written down, and now everyone can know the Halakha. Of course, there's a tremendous benefit of everyone knowing halachas. They can all behave properly as Jews. Of course. 
So of course that that greatly outweighs the problems. But there is this idea, this benefit of of having the oral Torah exclusively oral. Number uh, next reason: What happens if you have a written, formalized oral Torah? Everyone gets for the bar mitzvah gift a copy of oral Torah. They go to their basement and start reading. Okay, maybe they'll know something. Maybe it'll go awry. Like we mentioned, that's that's, that's one problem. People won't, won't understand it. They won't have something to teach them. That's one problem we spoke about that prior. But what happens to the Jewish community? What happens to building relationships with previous generations? What happens with this continuous link all the way back to Sinai, where it's possible for someone living in 2016 to say, I studied from my teacher, who studied from his teacher, who studied from his teacher, all the way back to Moses. It's still possible to say that. What happens if you all got the document? What happens to the community? In fact, there's a statement in the Talmud, which is kind of a little scary, a little radical, but the idea is, is, a, is, a, is a crucial idea. O chavrusa, o misusa. Either I have someone to study with, or I'm dead. To really grow as a Jew, to grow as a Torah scholar, to grow as a community, we need to have interactions. The Talmud talks about what happens when someone studies Torah. Someone studies Torah by themselves, it's tremendous. But if you study Torah with someone else, and the more people that are there, the greater the atmosphere of Torah study, first of all, the more accurate the Torah will be that's conveyed. Because the more people you talk to, you can debate, you can discuss, you can, you know, bounce ideas off other people. But this is a Jewish environment. You know what happens when there's a Jewish environment? We grow every other area of our lives. People on their own, you know, they're not connected to the community. Maybe, maybe it will be possible to write down the old Torah in a way that people understand. Even so, there's a benefit to force the people to create a cohesive environment where people are dedicated and cause and purpose and mission to study Torah together, to grow together, to, to, to help each other. What kind of a dynamic group is that? And how much better a scenario, a situation is that for uh, for growth and development as Jews. And lastly, and this is a little bit the other way around, as students, we would grow certainly uh, from studying with other students. Pilpo chavrim, ditkun chavrim, these are names that are, that's, they're called in, in Jewish literature, to debate and to refine with our friends. What about the teachers? What forces someone to, to grow more than being forced to teach? The Talmud tells us, when the great rabbis announced, I studied lots of Torah from my teachers. I studied even more from my colleagues, from my friends. And me talmidai yoser mikulam, from my students more than any one of them. Nothing teaches you more than having to teach others. So this is kind of from the flip side. If you, of course it's better to study from someone alive, breathing, dynamic human, or group of humans, but we grow collectively by having the teachers also improving themselves. You could teach, you know, if you teach it to yourself, that's you're kind of limited. You teach it forward, you yourself become a greater scholar. Ironically, you learn more from your students than you learn from your teachers. I'm saying, like, I spent many years as, as a Jew, and I never made as intense of understanding of why oral Torah was oral until I was forced to give a class on it. So you guys, and whoever's watching online and listening online, you guys are made forcing me to study. But what happens, right? I'm teaching this orally, and now I'm growing as a scholar and as a student of Judaism. So, in conclusion, you know, the question is asked, why is the oral Torah? Just write it down. And yes, it's, it's a good question, but it's important to us. It's a simplistic question. First of all, it presupposes that writing it down would be effective, and we know it's not effective. The Constitution was written down. It was written down. And you know what? Today, a mere 200 years later, 200 some odd years later, we don't know what it means. It's up to interpretation. Half the country says Second Amendment means one thing. Half the country says something. How is it possible? How many words is it, right? It's not even so many words. That's just the way things work. You write something down, everyone interprets it their own way. There's no inflection. We don't know what it says. Uh, the, you know, we, we cannot possibly, if we had a recording maybe of uh, Thomas Jefferson, maybe we would have a little bit more clarity in what he meant. 
How exactly did he present it? What does a militia mean? Well-organized militia. I don't know what the words are, sorry. A well-written militia shall not be, should not be, the rights to have a well-written militia should not be curbed or something like that, infringed upon. It's a sentence. We have no idea what it means. It's a single sentence. It was written down. It's clear. Well, it's not so clear. If Thomas Jefferson was here and he was teaching us, we would know what he meant. We would know. No question. As simple as that. But even, see, even if we can find a way, we're clever, we're geniuses, we can find a way to give over the oral Torah in a written format, there are so many, we went through nine different reasons why it's still better, it's preferred for a variety of reasons to have it, have it transmitted orally. It's a better method of communication. We benefit greatly. And even when the oral Torah had to be written down by necessity, the feeling, the flavor the methodology of the oral Torah was maintained to the degree that it was maintained. So, for example, we look at the oral Torah as written down incrementally. It was written down the Mishnah, then the Talmud, then the Halacha over various different iterations. Why was it not just all written down? Well, they wanted to minimize. Remember, they had a necessity, they had a reason that they were mandated. They had to write down the oral Torah or else Jewish people would cease to exist. But, write the minimum. And at every stage of writing down the oral Torah, they had to write down just the bare necessities of what needs to be written down because of the, 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 the variety of reasons that we, that we propose. And maybe there's even more uh, of, of why it's still the preferred method to have it uh, transmitted in its oral, its oral format. Uh, next week, God willing, we're going to be talking about why um, or how the oral Torah was transmitted so well without mistakes. Uh, how we only find disagreements 1,300 years into the process or 1,200 years. There's no, there's no disagreements. We don't find any, any disagreements. You know, two Jews, three opinions. Somehow we managed to survive 13, 12, 1,300 years without any disagreements. And why, you know, why the disagreements happen and, and why it had to ultimately run down, but also like how was it perpetuated and what were the dramatic existential transformational shifts in Jewish life that forced the decision, the weighty, and visionary decision to write down the, 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 uh, the oral Torah.